Up front next, the breaking news. Rudy Giuliani ordered to pay $148 million to two Georgia poll workers whom he accused of rigging the 2020 election falsely. But will Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss see any of that money? The attorney for the two women is out front. Also breaking Israel, killing three of its own hostages, men that the IDF believes it actually managed to escape Hamas. And we'll talk to the father of an American hostage about whether he thinks his son may also be trying to escape. And the Democratic governor of Arizona calling up the National Guard for help at the border. We are live in Arizona tonight to show you the migrant surge they are seeing there. Let's go out front. And good evening, I'm Aaron Burnett. Out front tonight, the breaking news, $148 million. That is what Rudy Giuliani has been ordered to pay Georgia election workers Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss after accusing them of rigging the 2020 election. This was a jury verdict, jury of the peers. It is a jaw-dropping number. It is the actual verdict form that breaks down into numbers. Let me show you. Ruby Freeman awarded 161 million dollars for defamation, $20 million for emotional distress. Shea Moss awarded nearly $17 million for defamation and $20 million for emotional distress. And then the two women were also awarded $75 million in punitive damages. So when you add all that together, that's where you get the $148 million number. That's the price that Rudy Giuliani, now from a a group of his peers, the jurors, will pay for his loyalty to Donald Trump. Now, remember, Giuliani, of course, was at the forefront of Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election, and he took no prisoners. He went after people pejoratively, personally, Freeman and Moss, accusing them of stealing the election from his client. How can they say there's no fraud? Look at that woman. Look at her taking those ballots out. Look at them scurrying around with the ballots. Nobody in the room hiding around. They look like they're they're passing out dope, not just ballots. And of course, all this has been gone through thoroughly again and again and again, court of law, journalism, you know, none of this is true. But even today, Giuliani is doubling down on it. I have no doubt that my comments were made and they were supportable and are supportable today. I just did not have an opportunity to present the evidence that we offered. Well, Giuliani actually did have the opportunity to testify, so that, that's not accurate. Uh, he had an opportunity to present the evidence that he claims he has, but he backed out at the last minute. And the reality of it, of course, is this, that his lies resulted in the two women facing years of harassment and threats. Threats like this voicemail. Have a nice life. What left of it you have. Hey, this is Shay. Hey, I hope you like JR because that's where you're going on your way to hell. Well, Freeman and Moss later testified before the January 6th committee, and they detailed some of what they have suffered because of those lies and threats. I've lost my name and I've lost my reputation. I've lost my sense of security. It's affected my life in in a major way, in every way. All because of lies. Those lies will now cost Rudy Giuliani $148 million, according to this verdict. So Caitlin Polans is out front, live outside the courthouse. Caitlin, you have been covering uh, this uh, in, in, in excruciating detail from the very, very beginning. And this is now a staggering amount of money awarded from a jury. What happens now? Well, Aaron, these women, Ruby Freeman, Shamos, and the lawyers working with them, they're going to try and collect some of this money, whatever they can get 
out of Rudy Giuliani. There's going to be a couple things that happen still in court. So there's something still on the table where their teams had gone to the judge and wanted a court order to order <coughs> Rudy Giuliani to take down anything on his social media accounts, on websites he controlled that would repeat these sorts of false statements. We're going to wait to see if they're going to continue asking for that. The judge might have some sort of order like that, essentially barring Giuliani from continue to propagate these lies. And then the other thing that's going to happen is they're very likely going to be coming to court. They already indicated that they're going to come to court to try and get to those payments as quickly as possible, that they're mm -hmm. going to want to try and get Rudy Giuliani to put liens on things that he has. Uh, and they're going to want to do that before he even has the chance to get bond or an appeal. So all of that is going to be playing out in the coming days in the court. But a reminder, Aaron, Rudy Giuliani says he is broke. He's trying to sell an apartment for about $6 million in New York that he has. It's very unclear how much other money he might have. He doesn't have money to pay for lawyers or anything else. <coughs> right. But these two women, they want to send a message. It's not just about the money. They reiterated that today. All right, Caitlin, thank you very much. And out front now, John Langford. He is an attorney for Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss. And, and John, you know, you heard uh, Caitlin reporting there. Your clients have made it clear it's not just about the money. It's about uh, making a point. Um, but of course, when it comes to the money, Rudy Giuliani's lawyer says he's broke and we know he's got mounting legal bills and multiple lawsuits. He said he can't pay any of those, right? We don't know exactly what he has, but uh, but but we know he doesn't have a, a, enough to pay all of the things due. Um, will your client see any of this money that they were awarded today by that jury? Well, thank you for having me, um, Aaron. Uh, we are going to work very, very hard to ensure that they see every bit of money that Mr. Giuliani has available to him to <clears throat> pay and satisfy this judgment. And I would like to add one point, which is we went and asked for the evidence about his net worth and about what his finances actually are. And guess who didn't produce that evidence? Mm. Rudy Giuliani. And that led to a jury instruction saying, you cannot assume that he is unable to satisfy a judgment. And so I would say on whether Mr. Giuliani can satisfy this judgment, the jury's still out. And we're going to find out and we're going to do everything in our power to make sure he has to pay. And, and how quickly are you going to move? Caitlin indicating extremely fast. What does that actually mean for you, John? Well, I, I will say I'm part of a, of a team that represented Ruby and Shay, and um, our team is immensely talented and has been thinking about this exact problem. This is not a surprise to us, and we do have plans to move as quickly as we possibly can. The next step here is to go to court on Monday to um, figure out how we're going to go forward with getting final judgment entered. Getting a final judgment entered is the document you need to go to other jurisdictions where Mr. Giuliani has assets, New York, Florida, and attach those assets uh, to his, uh, attach the judgment to his assets. He also just signed a contract with Newsmax uh, almost unbelievably. Hmm. So we're looking at every option we have um, to obtain the money that he owes Ruby and Shay. And he has shown no remorse. As, as we made clear, John, no remorse uh, for what he said, what he did, what he claimed, which was untrue, and the impact that that had on Ruby and Shay. Here he is just a few days ago. Everything I said about them is true. Do you regret no. what you did to Sh Ruby? Of course I don't regret. I told the truth. They, they were engaged in changing votes. Now, of course, this has been uh, factually disproven. It's just not true. It didn't occur. But, John, what, 
what's your reaction when you even hear that? I mean, do you think that that mattered with the jury? I mean, is he just saying this because he's trying to go through an appeals? I mean, how do you even respond when you hear that? Well, first of all, I find it disgusting. I mean, he walked out of the courtroom where he just heard a presentation about the ways in which his lies have upended Ruby and Shay's lives for three years. They have courage and bravery to stand up to him, but for him to walk out of that courtroom and say that on that day was disgusting. Our client, Shay, told the jury how she found out about that. We went back to a hotel. She saw it on a television screen that the man who just walked out of a courtroom hearing the impact of his lies on their lives. Um, so it's, it's, it's frankly, it's disgusting. It's, you know, he also in that same statement said, it's unfortunate what happened to Ruby and Shay. It's not unfortunate what happened to him. What is he, who does he think is causing this to happen to Ruby and Shay? And I sat two <clears throat> feet away from his attorney in closing argument who said, you know, the jury should send a message that we need to bring the country together. Look at what happened on January 6th. Who do you think caused what happened on January 6th? What is the root? I mean, it, it's, it's, I, those are two of the stupidest things I have heard in my entire life. And it's disgusting. All right. Well, John, I appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Thank you. And then I've heard from one of Ruby and Shay's attorneys. Let's go to John Avalon, our senior political analyst, former chief speechwriter for then Mayor Giuliani. So, of course, he knows uh, him very well over very many years. And Ryan Goodman, co-editor-in-chief of Just Security and the former special counsel of the Defense Department. Um, you know, I, I heard you and saw you here you know, sort of shaking your head as we heard Rudy Giuliani speak. Yeah. Both his comments uh, er <laughs> earlier, a few days ago, and then tonight after the verdict. Yep. Um, that's not defiance. Um, that's delusion. And it's, it's sad to see. His own lawyer presented a defense in the closing uh, arguments that his comparing Rudy Giuliani to a flat Earth Society member. Basically, it's, it's a form of the insanity defense, I guess. He believes these things his that are not attorney. true. Yeah. His own attorney. And this is somebody that, that compounding tragedy of it, who was somebody who was one of the most respected prosecutors of his generation. Yep. You know, an Italian-American who helped bring down the mob in New York City, someone who turned around New York City, made it the safest, largest city in America, someone who showed extraordinary leadership on 9-11. On and he has so thoroughly debased himself and is unfortunately so detached with real, from reality. And, it, it, you know, he used to say, to be locked into partisan politics doesn't permit you to think clearly. Rudy Giuliani has not been thinking clearly since he got locked into hyperpartisan politics, and it's tragic. That Trump orbit, I mean, it is unbelievable. And now, Ryan, um, just looking at this form here, you know, you see it in hand, handwritten, 3.35 p.m. on December 15th, and then there's the amounts laid out. You know, just actually, you know, human being wrote these numbers out. These numbers are enormous. Um, is, are they going to get any of this money? I mean, I know they, it's clear they don't expect to get all this money. I mean, that's not the point of this. Um, but how much? Who knows? Um, there's nowhere they'll collect that amount. I don't think they'll collect half the amount or a quarter of the amount. Yeah. So we're talking about a fraction. Uh, but I do think maybe they'll collect millions. Uh, it depends upon what his assets are. Um, and even if he were to declare <coughs> bankruptcy, the judgment in all likelihood is um, independent of any bankruptcy charge. It would be like alimony checks or taxes that a person owes. Mm. He'd have right. to pay them in any case. So. He's in trouble, and it's all a question of how many assets he has. Does he have a multimillion-dollar apartment here and there? And then it's about them versus maybe other creditors. Right, other creditors, his own lawyers, his own, right? I yes. mean, that, you know, that he hasn't paid any of those bills for. Yeah. Um, John, former President Trump threw a $100,000 plate dinner for Giuliani to raise money to pay those lawyers when he said he couldn't pay them. And, you know, there was speculation then. Well, was he worried if he didn't do that for Giuliani that, you know, 
Giuliani could uh, could turn against him in some way. So what happens now? We've heard of, haven't heard a word from Trump since that dinner. No. And, and, and all this is, of course, the downstream effect of Donald Trump from the lies that Donald Trump, you know, was spreading that then Rudy Giuliani peddled in mm-hmm. courts to the extent of defamation. Um, look, lest we forget, Rudy Giuliani basically, he lit his reputation on fire for Donald Trump. He wasn't paid as a lawyer, right? So that, that fundraiser you're talking about was after the fact. Right. And, and maybe designed to sort of shore him up. Presumably, Rudy was in the room uh, when all these conversations mm-hmm. happened and perhaps thought it was being covered by attorney-client privilege. But you know, one of the reasons he went from being worth around $30 million, according to court documents during his divorce not that long ago, to very, very little now except underlying assets like an apartment, is because he worked for Donald Trump effectively for free because he didn't pay his legal bills, just the expenses at the end of the day. Uh, so that's that's just that, that loyalty is being a one-way street. It's coming out of his hide now. Donald Trump you know, might be able to pay $150 million judgment, not Rudy Giuliani. And so what are the implications here for Donald Trump? I think they're actually quite severe. Uh, In a certain sense, we just got a message from a jury that adjudicated some of the very same facts that will be part of the January 6th Mm. criminal trial. Mm. The allegations in the original indictment include what Giuliani did with Ms. Mahas and Ms. Friedman. They're in the original indictment. Earlier this month, Jack Smith sent in another motion to the court, and he said in it, the defendant continued to falsely attack two Georgia election workers despite being unnoticed that his claims about them in 2010 were false and had subjected them to vile, racist, and violent threats and harassment. The defendant there is Donald Trump. It's an overlap with what just Mm. happened. So this means this is very strong. They will be witnesses against Donald Trump in all likelihood. You can see the writing on the wall. Well, which is extremely significant when you look again, a a jury verdict here tonight. All right, thank you both very much. And next, a CNN investigation, hundreds of Palestinian boys and men identified by their relatives as civilians, blindfolded, stripped, and detained by Israel. Also breaking, Matthew Perry's cause of death just released, and Dr. Sanjay Gupta is out front to talk about those details. And we also have remarkable images tonight of a massive solar flare that knocked out airline communications and radio signals around Earth. Former NASA astronaut Mike Massimino is out front. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your sleep number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff, and some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. 
The breaking news, Israel accidentally killing three of its own hostages in Gaza. A spokesman for the Israel Defense Force is saying the three men, Yotam Chaim, Samer Talalka, and Alon Shimriz, either managed to escape or had been abandoned by Hamas. And they likely believed they were on their way to freedom. And then according to the IDF, they were confronted by Israeli forces, a moment that for them, maybe they thought, oh my gosh, finally. But the Israeli Defense Forces mistakenly viewed them as a threat, and they shot and killed them. The Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is calling this a, quote, unbearable tragedy. I want to go straight to Jeremy Diamond. And Jeremy, the IDF is taking full responsibility tonight. Um, there's no, no ambiguity about what happened here. What more are you learning? Well, tonight, Aaron, three Israeli civilians who are being held hostage by Hamas since October 7th are dead, and they were killed by Israeli forces who believed that they were Palestinian militants, killed mistakenly uh, as those soldiers appeared to believe that these men were a threat. Uh, the three men are all in their 20s. 28-year-old Yotam Chaim and 26-year-old Alon Shimriz were both from Kibbutz Kfar Aza. 25-year-old Samer Talalka, he was kidnapped from Kibbutz near Am. All of them kidnapped by Hamas on October 7th. The Israeli military says that they were either uh, on the run or that they were abandoned by their captors. And it's important to note that where they were killed has been the scene of very heavy fighting over the last week. The Shuja'iya neighborhood of Gaza City is one of Hamas's last remaining strongholds uh, in northern Gaza, and the Israeli military has been targeting them. Now, the Israeli prime minister, for his part, called this an unbearable tragedy, and he said that the whole state of Israel is grieving. But tonight, Aaron, dozens of Israelis in Tel Aviv are also protesting, demanding that the Israeli prime minister reach a deal immediately to free the 100-plus remaining hostages still in Gaza. It's a horrible, horrible tragedy. Well, the IDF, I know, also under criticism tonight for their treatment of Palestinian men and even boys who've been identified by their relatives. Uh, they say they're civilians. Uh, these men, though, have been blindfolded, uh, stripped of their clothes. What can you tell us about your investigation into what's happening here, Jeremy? Well, Aaron, we've watched over the last week and a half as images have so surfaced on social media of dozens of Palestinian men and boys stripped, blindfolded, hands handcuffed behind their backs, detained by Israeli soldiers in northern Gaza. We were actually able to get firsthand testimony from about 10 of those men and boys who were held by the Israeli military for five days. Here's the abuse and the mistreatment that they described. Bruised, lacerated and swollen. These are the hands of Nimr Abu Ras after he was detained for five days by Israeli forces. These are from the plastic wires. We were handcuffed behind our backs. His wounds are not unique in this corner of Gaza's Al-Aqsa Martyrs Hospital. Here, six boys and four men, their hands numbered with red marker, were being treated hours after Israeli forces released them without charge. Mahmoud is just 14 years old. This is from the boots. He and his father were detained by Israeli soldiers in the Al Zaytun neighborhood of Gaza City, where the Israeli military has been engaged in heavy fighting with Hamas. They would tie your hands behind your back and drag you like a dog. Plastic handcuffs scars on your arms. Depending on the mood of one of them, they would come kick you with their boots. I didn't do anything to him. He just decided to come and kick me. Mahmoud and his father are among hundreds of Palestinian boys and men, many of them identified by their relatives or employers as civilians, who have been blindfolded, stripped and detained in recent weeks. 
They put us on the floor and put their feet on our heads. They would ask, are you Hamas? And beat us. When we wanted to sleep, we couldn't because it was so cold. And when we asked for something to wear or cover ourselves with, they would beat us. The 10 boys and men who spoke to CNN described nearly identical accounts of abuse. Several said they were not allowed to go to the bathroom, made to sleep on grains of rice spread on the floor, and given little to no food or water. A day after he arrived at the hospital, 40-year-old Mahmoud Islim can barely stand. His relatives say he is diabetic and had no access to insulin during his five-day detention. All arrived physically and psychologically exhausted. There were signs of torture on their arms and signs of beating all over their bodies. In a statement, the Israeli military said it was detaining individuals suspected of involvement in terrorist activity and that those who are found not to be taking part in terrorist activities are released. The IDF said the individuals detained are treated in accordance with international law and that it strives to treat any detainee with dignity. Any incident in which the guidelines were not followed will be looked into. A spokesman for the Israeli military declined to address specific allegations of mistreatment or provide an explanation for the detention of the 10 boys and men interviewed by CNN. International law is quite clear that you can only detain civilians when absolutely necessary for imperative reasons of security, whether the detention is of a civilian or a combatant. The law protects those in detention and custody against degrading and humiliating treatment and outrages upon personal dignity. For 14-year-old Ahmad, the trauma is not just physical. I don't want to speak. I'm afraid. I'm scared of the Israelis. I don't want them to do something to us. With his father's permission, he adds his story to the allegations of abuse. And now the State Department has said that Israeli officials have committed to returning the clothing uh, to these detainees as soon as they are strip searched. But so many more questions still remain, Aaron, about the practice of detaining these large groups of men and boys in, in areas of Gaza and also their treatment, as we heard from them firsthand. Aaron. Absolutely. Nice to hear from so many. Young men and, uh, and teens at uh, Palestinians in the West Bank uh, as well, these frustrations. All right, thank you very much, Jeremy. And I want to go now to Israeli-American Jonathan Dekelchen. His son, 35-year-old Sagi Dekelchen, is still being held in Gaza. Sagi is the father of two young children. And Jonathan, I know uh, you wait and wait, and every day is, is that, that, that agonizing wait. And then today, uh, the IDF says that three Israeli hostages in Gaza were killed mistakenly by IDF forces, uh, that it appears that they'd either tried to escape or been abandoned by Hamas, but there they were, and they see the IDF, and surely they think that this is it. Uh, and then this horrific, horrific thing happens. I, I, I can't even imagine for you what your reaction could be when you heard this today and how terrified you must be that this could happen to your son if he tried to escape or something. Well, that's... that. And it's certainly a thought that goes through my head and surely every other um, every other person who has a loved one in Hamas captivity. Um, as far as this, this tragic, tragic incident today, it's tragedy upon tragedy. Um, these three young men uh, probably did think that they were on their way to freedom after 70 or so days of a, of a living hell. 
um, and having somehow survived the massacre on October 7th. It's also tragic because um, their families now will never see them again. Um, they are victims of uh, delayed, but victims of October 7th as well. And, you know, as an ex-soldier, as any old soldier would be able to say, I feel terrible for, for the soldiers themselves, the Israeli soldiers who clearly made a, a fatal error and they're gonna have to live with that for the rest of their lives. It's just, it is just so horrible. Um, I know you had a chance, Jonathan, to meet with President Biden at the White House this week. Uh, We've got some images of that. And uh, I, I know that much of that pri conversation, of course, was private. It was you and other uh, Americans, Israeli Americans, uh, who have family members who are held hostage by Hamas right now. But what can you share about that meeting? Well, it was indeed a meeting. There were representatives from nine, well, actually 10 of the American families who uh, had, or most of them still have, hostages being held by Hamas. Uh, we indeed met with President Biden and Secretary Blinken for about two hours in, in the White House. Mm -hmm. And it was really an, a, a reassuring um, uh, experience. And we went into it having really been in contact since shortly after the October 7th attacks yeah. with representatives of the U.S. government. And what we heard from the president and Secretary Blinken and shortly thereafter from a CIA director uh, from CIA director is an, uh, a steadfast commitment to doing whatever the U.S. government can do to get all of the hostages out, not just the remaining uh, eight Americans. But of course, right. in the end, uh, leaders in Israel and leaders of Hamas are going to have to, um, one way or another, agree to make this happen. Mm. I know we all can just, you know, hope and, and, and pray that that does happen. Uh, and of course, even in the face of this, just a uh, just horrible, horrible thing that happened today. Jonathan, thank you very much. Thank you. All right, and next we have uh, some breaking details here on Matthew Perry's official cause of death. Uh, we do understand it's been revealed as, in part, acute effects of ketamine. Dr. Sanjay Gupta is out front next. Well, with more on the breaking details as we're learning them, plus a binder in Trump's possession that was filled with highly classified information about an investigation into Russian election meddling. It vanishes in the final days of the Trump administration. So who took it? Where is it? Breaking news, ketamine. We are learning tonight that the, quote, acute effects of ketamine is what led to actor Matthew Perry's death. This is according to the Los Angeles County Medical Examiner tonight. Other contributing factors, drowning, coronary artery disease, and the effects of an opioid. The report also revealing a live-in assistant found Perry's body unresponsive in his Malibu home pool. Perry was only 54 years old. Um, Dr. Sanjay Gupta is out front with me now. So, um, okay, Sanjay, we, we are learning more details here. Uh, at the time of his death in October, it was determined there were no drugs at Matthew Perry's house, yet he died of a, of a ketamine overdose. So can you tell us more about this drug and the effects of this drug that could have led to, to his either death and then, uh, you know, then drowning effects or his drowning. Yeah, so there were, it was a long report, Aaron. It was about 30 pages. And as you point out, acute ketamine intoxication was what they list as the primary cause. And what they mean by that is ketamine that he had taken recently. They found remnants of this trace amounts in his stomach. So it sounds like something that he swallowed. You can take ketamine in different ways. It can be injected, it can be snorted, it can be swallowed. 
Uh, if it's swallowed, it, it takes usually about a half an hour or so for it to take effect. So reading through this report sounds like what happened is that uh, he took some ketamine. Uh, he went into the pool. The ketamine is a dissociative. It dissociates someone from their environment. It can sometimes be used even uh, under anesthesia. And to give you some context, uh, when they measured the levels, they were quite high in the 3,000 sort of range. And anesthesia levels can be anywhere from 1,000 to 6,000. So it was a fair amount of ketamine, sounds like, that he took. But uh, Aaron, it sounds like he became dissociated as a result of that. And because he was in the pool, um, he sort of probably kind of lost consciousness and, and fell into the pool or kind of put his face into the pool. And, and that's ultimately what sounds like led to his death. As one of the medical examiners that we talked to said, just to sort of describe this, it was not likely the ketamine itself that led to his death, but it made it more likely mm. that he drowned. Right. So and had he not been in the pool, uh, it, yeah. it's, it's likely that he would not have died. Uh, which, is, which is incredible. And it's a drug. Of course, I actually so uh, uh, recently, you know, someone who was at that, the Raven Israel was saying, you know, there's more and more use of ketamine now. Uh, so a, a drug many might be familiar with. Um, his co-star, mm. Jennifer Aniston, had said she texted with him the day she died. And she says he was in a good place. Sanjay, she said he was happy, he was healthy, he had quit smoking, he was getting in shape, he was happy. That's all I know. Um, and obviously we don't know much more here. We do know there was an opioid in his system, another one that could be used to treat an opioid mm. um, that they said mm. in that uh, autopsy report that you referenced. Are there any medical right. reasons that could have explained all these things that wouldn't have you know, indicated some sort of a drug relapse or something? Not, not, not really. It was interesting when you when I read the report, you know, he was also getting ketamine infusion therapy, <clears throat> as you may have heard, uh, Aaron, um, yeah. which can be a useful treatment for depression and anxiety. But this that infusion therapy really sounds like it had nothing to do with this, because the last time he received an infusion therapy was about a week and a half earlier. And to give you some context, um, typically the half life of ketamine is, is a few hours, oh. not not a few days. So. Uh, it sounds like in addition to that infusion therapy, he was taking ketamine recreationally, um, took it into his stomach. The buprenorphine, the other drug you mentioned, that's an, a synthetic opioid, which can sometimes dampen the hallucinogenic effects of ketamine. But again, we don't, we don't know what, why he was taking it, why he was taking him in conjunction. We just know sort of what sadly ended up happening. Mm. All right, Sanjay, well, thank you very much for explaining so much of that. You got it. All right. Thank you. And next, the binder filled with sensitive information about Russia. It disappeared in the final days of Trump's presidency, and it is still missing. So where is it? Also breaking now, Arizona's Democratic governor sending the National Guard to the border as her state struggles to cope with the deadly crush of migrants. We'll take you live to the border tonight. Hacks is coming back, and so is the official Hacks podcast. With us, your hosts. I'm Paul W. Downs. I'm Jen Statsky. And I'm Lucia Agnello. We're the creators and showrunners. Each week on the podcast, we'll break down the new episodes. We'll also have special guests, cast and crew from the show, like Hannah Einbinder and Jean Smart. Hacks Season 3 is available to stream now on Max. Be sure to listen wherever you get your podcasts or listen directly on Max. Tonight, a CNN investigation has found that a binder full of highly classified information connected to the FBI investigation into Russian meddling in the presidential election of 2016 went missing. 
in the final hours of the Trump presidency. And that information is part of the FBI's so-called crossfire hurricane case. It was deemed so sensitive it could only be viewed at the CIA, not even in a skiff somewhere else. You had to go to the CIA. And Trump himself has made no effort to hide his interest in this classified information. According to the New York Times, he suggested in a 2021 interview about a book that his former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, had the binder. He said, I would let you look at them if you wanted. It's a treasure trove. And this is what Cassidy Hutchinson, Meadows' former aide, writes in her book. I watched him climb into the limo, noticing the original Crossfire Hurricane binder tucked under his arm. I did not have time to ask what he planned to do with it as he drove away. What the hell is Mark doing with the unredacted Crossfire Hurricane binder? Evan Perez was part of the team that broke this exclusive reporting. And Evan, so... From what you're saying, the binder was last seen at the White House in Trump's final days in office. The president had ordered it brought there so he could declassify documents related to the FBI Russia investigation, right? It's a binder that, that, that wasn't in any normal situation, never supposed to even leave CIA at headquarters, never mind go to some right. sort of a special classified room anywhere else. So what more can you tell us about the actual binder itself? Well, we know, Aaron, that this was uh, some of the most sensitive uh, uh, intelligence material that the United States has, right? This is material that is related to sources and methods. Uh, it's information that is very prized, not only by the United States, but by NATO allies. And the real concern was that if it gets into the wrong hands, and if certainly if the former president were to just release it all, that it would be damaging not only diplomatic, you know, to our relationships with our allies, but it also could get people killed, right? You get sources and methods uh, out there, and it could uh, re show uh, Russia and other countries uh, who was providing information to us. And so that was the concern when the former president asked, and, and Mark Meadows uh, at his request, had them bring this trove of information in the closing days of the, uh, the chaotic closing days of the Donald Trump presidency. And the the plan was to have this get declassified and to release it uh, first to conservative journalists and then to the world, right? And what we know is that in those, in those last frantic hours, Mark Meadows had a version of this that he returned back to the, to the Justice Department. We don't know what happens to uh, the other material that may not have been in there. So we don't know what exactly happened after that. It's amazing. You're in the final hours here. There's this incredibly sensitive information <clears throat> just floating around in certain hands. Are there any clues about where it is now? Well, there's a number of, of, of big concerns, certainly from the intelligence community. They were so concerned that last year they went and briefed uh, members of the, the Senate Intelligence uh, leadership of the Senate Intelligence Committee to raise concerns that this could could fall into the wrong hands. The other thing uh, we heard there from Cassidy Hutchinson's uh, book, you know, she had her theory about uh, whether somehow it went from Mark Meadows' office somewhere else. And so we did uh, reach out to Meadows' uh, attorney, and here's what he had to say. This is George to Williger, he said, Mr. Meadows was keenly aware of and adhered to uh, requirements of the proper handling of classified material. And he also said uh, that any idea, any, any suggestion that Mark Meadows uh, had anything to do with a missing binder is completely false, uh, Aaron. And so at this point, it remains a mystery that has not been solved. All right. Evan, thank you very much, Evan, uh, breaking that exclusive reporting. And next, more breaking news from Arizona. The Democratic governor there tearing into President Biden for failing to help the migrant surge. Next, we're going to take you to the border to see that surge there up close tonight. Plus, is there life on other planets? Well, I'm going to talk to former astronaut Mike Massimino, who believes that there is. And he'll tell you why.
Breaking news. Arizona sending the National Guard to the border. Democratic Governor Katie Hobbs ordering the move amid a crush of migrants from Mexico and calling out President Biden for refusing her requests for help. The National Guard will head to multiple border locations, including Lukeville, where there's new video that shows hundreds of migrants in limbo. There's just not enough workers to even process their cases. Rosa Flores is out front. How y'all doing? Jason Owens, Good. the U.S. Border Patrol chief, says his agency is overwhelmed by the unprecedented migrant surge, with thousands of people entering the U.S. illegally every day. One hot spot, Lukeville, Arizona. Did you sleep outside? Where Maida and her three children from Ecuador waited in the cold overnight to be transported for immigration processing. It's the border being exploited by the criminal elements, the transnational criminal organizations. Owen says some Border Patrol facilities are 200 to 300 percent over capacity, with about 20,000 migrants in custody. The federal government has temporarily closed three ports of entry. Eagle Pass, Texas, Lukeville, Arizona, and a pedestrian crossing in San Isidro, California, interrupting lawful trade and travel while illegal crossings continue. It's frustrating for all of us. Owen says several dozen employees at these crossings have been reassigned to process migrants. And it's certainly not the right response. Arizona Governor Katie Hobbs, a Democrat, wrote a letter to President Joe Biden urging him to use the National Guard to reopen the Lukeville crossing. The tourism is being greatly impacted in, in especially Rocky Point. Rocky Point is a resort town on Mexico's Sea of Cortez, where many Americans own investment property like Bo and Rubalcaba from Utah. And now it's our only source of income. He owns seven vacation properties and says he has lost $35,000 in canceled reservations since the Lukeville crossing closed. It's how Americans access the beach town. It makes me very upset because I feel like our leaders are failing us. She says that it's on TikTok, that it's on Facebook, que la frontera está abierta por ahora, that the border is open for now. Apparent misinformation fueling the flow. What's the backup in Lukeville? It's, it's a very remote location. Owen says the cartels have dropped off thousands of migrants in the rugged Arizona desert, creating a logistical nightmare for agents. And while we're doing that, we can't be out on patrol. And so guess what the cartels and the smugglers are doing? They're using that opportunity to cross other things. Like fentanyl, cash, and criminals, he says. Apprehensions of people on the terrorist watch list have spiked. 15 in fiscal year 2021, 169 in fiscal year 2023. These are the things that keep us up at night. There is nothing that crosses our borders illicitly that is not in the control of the TCOs and the cartels. That's a scary thought. It's very scary. Owen says the only thing scarier are the gotaways, the people detected on the border but not apprehended. There's been more than 1.1 million since 2019. They're making millions, tens of millions of dollars a week. A few hours after talking to Chief Owens on this boat ramp, an apparent coyote used the same ramp to smuggle a man into Laredo, Texas. These folks probably are the ones that, that have the criminal histories, that, that are coming in with, with bad intent. I asked Owens what he needs to keep the border safe. Take a look at this wide shot of the scene. You see the Arizona desert, the border wall, and Mexico on the other side. 
Owen says that he needs technology, infrastructure, more border patrol agents. In the past few days, there's been a steady stream of migrants walking down this path. Let me show you how they get in. Smugglers on the Mexican side cut this border wall on the U.S. side, Aaron. You can see that these are markings when they the border wall has been repaired. And Aaron, I want to leave you with this because this is a freshly cut border wall. You can see that it was cut and it was repaired just last week. Aaron? Wow, that is incredible just to see that. And also, Rosa, every single one, cut, cut, cut. I mean, they're all marked, so many around where you're standing. All right, thank you very much. It's incredible. In Arizona tonight, where Rosa is live. And next, the images of a massive solar flare that has knocked out communications around the world. We'll be back. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season... We want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.